Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, The Remnant. All right, well, if you've been with us any length of time, if you've been reading the Bible for any length of time, then you know that God has a very special place in his heart for Israel. In fact, about 4,000 years ago, God chose a man. His name, Abram, later to be known as Abraham. The guy was a pagan. He was worshiping the false gods of the culture of his day. And God chose Abraham and made some very special promises, again, to Abraham about 4,000 years ago. We call it the Abrahamic Covenant. So by way of review, check it out again. I know I covered this about a month ago. So God said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants into a great nation. And not only that, but I'm going to be their God. Not only that, I'm going to give them a certain piece of land. It's called the promised land, the land of Canaan. And most important of all, Abraham, in your seed, speaking about the future Messiah, deliverer, savior, in your seed, Abraham, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God made sure that Abraham understood way back in Genesis 12, 15, 17, he made sure Abraham understood that this is an everlasting covenant. It's not temporary, it's eternal. It's not conditional, it is absolutely unconditional. And God would say to Abraham, by the way, Abraham, my covenant is not going to be through your son Ishmael, as we saw back in Romans chapter 9. It's going to be through your son Isaac. And it's not going to be through Isaac's son Esau, but it's going to be through Isaac's son Jacob. And so God has these very special promises for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, otherwise known as Israel. Okay, good news, but there's bad news. There's a problem, a really big problem. And that is that Israel, as a nation, over the centuries, has been known for their stubbornness and for their rebellion. How many of you guys have read through the Old Testament? Let me see your hand if you read through the Old Testament. So you know better than anybody as you read through the history of Israel, again, as a nation, as a whole, They've been very stubborn. In fact, they've been so stubborn that God said through his prophet Isaiah, and this is the last verse in chapter 10 that we covered last week. Check it out. Chapter 10, verse 21. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and to a contrary people. And so over and over and over, God, through the centuries, has reached out in love to Israel, the apple of his eye. And over and over and over again, as a nation, they've been very stubborn and they've hardened their hearts. Now, of course, the culmination of their hard heart occurred 2,000 years ago when God sent a Messiah to Israel. And what did they do? What was their response to the Messiah? Well, we remember in John's gospel, John chapter 1, verse 11, listen to this. John says that he came unto his own, and his own received him not. He, Jesus, came unto his own, Israel, and his own received him not. And so the culmination of their hard-heartedness over the centuries um, was there on display when, as a nation, they officially rejected Jesus as their Messiah, the one who came to them, God in the flesh, the Son of the living God, they said, no, we do not believe in you. So, after all that stubbornness, all that rebellion, here's the question that chapter 11 hinges on. It's the main question of the morning. Is God finished with Israel? Okay, let's find out. Chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? Everybody out, everybody just 
Say the next two words. Go ahead. There's your answer. And by the way, some in the church, I don't understand it, say that he is finished with Israel. I've never understood their position of replacement theology. We'll get a little bit into that later. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul says God has not cast away his people. Somebody says, Paul, how do you know for sure? And Paul would say, I'll just give you one example, me. Look at me. I'm an Israelite. I'm of the seed of Abraham. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. And so I'm proof that God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. So here's your next point if you're taking notes. Two very important statements as you're seeking to understand God's word. Okay? God is not finished with Israel. And there has always been a faithful, what's the word? Remnant to carry out his plan. Okay, so remnant. Again, very important word in Romans chapter 11. God willing, we'll get through 15 verses today and then tackle the rest of the chapter next week. So what, what is a remnant? Uh, you can define remnant as, quote, a small remaining quantity of something. Okay, so that's very important you understand what a remnant is. Again, what is a remnant? A small remaining quantity of something. For example, if you go home today and open up your refrigerator, um, you see the leftovers in your refrigerator. Well, those leftovers are a remnant of last night's dinner. You go into your garage and stacked up in your corner maybe, there's all these pieces of carpet. Well, those pieces of carpet are a remnant of the floor covering in your home. Okay, and so when we think of the remnants, we think of those worthless scraps. You know, it doesn't really matter. Who cares? But when God, when God thinks of his remnant, God thinks of those that he has chosen in his grace to fulfill his ultimate plan. And God's had his remnant all through history, even back in the ninth century BC. And Paul's going to use that as an example now, starting in verse 2. Check it out. He says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with the Lord against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Verse 4, but what does the divine response say to them? Here's what God says to Elijah. I have reserved for myself, how many men? There's your remnant right there. I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Okay, so I know technically you pronounce his name Baal. I grew up hearing his name, Baal. Most of you have as well. And so this morning, he's going to be Baal, okay? Here's your next point. If you're taking notes, there has always been a faithful remnant, even in the darkest times of history. Way back in the ninth century BC, Israel was going through a very dark time. The nation was thoroughly apostate. That's another important word. I think you got to understand what it means. The word apostate means to abandon the faith. Okay, so as a nation, Israel had become thoroughly apostate, and one of the main reasons why they were apostate is because they gave in to the, to the uh, detestable practice of Baal worship. Okay, so who is Baal? Baal was the god, the primary god of the Canaanites, and so you have what's called the promised land in the Old Testament. Okay, well, before it was the promised land, it was the land, of the, uh, the land of Canaan. And for centuries, pagans lived in Canaan, right? And they had all these horrible, this, this horrible, wicked lifestyle. And God gave them all these years to repent, but they never repented of their wickedness. Their, their worst sin that the Canaanites committed is that they would literally sacrifice their babies to their false gods as a burnt offering. And God finally said, I've had it up to here, no more chances. And so he gave that land 
Back in the Old Testament, he gave that land to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so now we fast forward to the 9th century B.C., and Baal worship has crept in, not only crept in, but now it's widespread throughout all of Israel. Baal was the supposed god of fertility. Baal supposedly controlled the rain. And so if you worshiped Baal back in the Old Testament days, then they, his prophets would tell you, God's going to bless you. He's going to make your wife fertile, and he's going to make your land fertile. Okay, so you're going to have, if you worship Baal, you're going to have lots of babies, and you're going to have uh, these incredible crops that are going to come, an abundance of crops that are going to come in. And so a lot, of, a lot of the people, a lot of the Jews in Israel, they believed that lie, and they began to worship Baal, hoping for some kind of blessing. Now, the, the worship, Baal worship included all these bizarre practices, um, not limited to, but including things like um, screaming out and self-mutilation. They would actually cut themselves. Sexual immorality. Um, Not only that, again, I I mentioned it, um, they sacrificed their children to these pagan gods. And so Baal worship was widespread, especially when this wicked couple comes on the scene. His name, the, the king of Israel, King Ahab, and his wife, who was a complete witch, her name was Jezebel. By the way, she was eaten later on by dogs. By the way, you ought to read this book because it's really exciting when you get into it. <laughs> Nothing boring about this book. Okay, so King Ahab and, and Queen Jezebel. Ahab and his zeal for Baal, he actually built a temple in Israel for Baal. Now, who's the true God? The true God is Yahweh, not Baal. And yet the king of Israel, the king of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, decides he's going to build a temple for Baal. And his wife, Jezebel, was so zealous in her um, uh, zeal for, for, for Baal, she went out and actually murdered many of the prophets of Yahweh, uh, the true God. And so when times are dark, what does God do? God always sends a man. When times are dark, God raises up a leader to speak out against the darkness. And the man of the hour in the ninth century B.C. in Israel was a man named Elijah. Elijah the prophet. Elijah lived in the land of Gilead, there east of the Jordan River. And his name, listen to this, Elijah, it means Yahweh is God. What a great name. Yahweh is God. One day, God sent Elijah the prophet to King Ahab. And this is what Elijah said to the king, 1 Kings 17, 1, quote, As the Lord God of Israel lives, Ahab, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. King Ahab, the country is, the nation of Israel is apostate. They've given in to Baal worship. They're involved in all these sinful lifestyles. God's had it up to here. And so what is God going to do? God's going to send a drought to Israel. There's not going to be any rain unless I say, Elijah said, there's going to be rain. And by the way, here's what you need to know. Historically, when God tries to get our attention, he often sends trouble into our lives. Right now, if you're not living for the Lord, if you're involved in whatever sinful lifestyle, What you need to know is that God loves you, and God loves you so much, he may send trouble into your life to get your attention so you will repent. And that's exactly what he did in the life of Israel. He sent a drought. Here's why. Because in good times, we tend to party, but in bad times, we tend to ponder and pray and repent. And so sure enough, just like Elijah said, for three and a half years, there was a drought in Israel, not a drop of rain anywhere in the borders of Israel. Can you imagine three and a half years, no rain at all? What did that do to that agricultural society? And so what, what, what is God doing? He's working on hearts. He's breaking up fallow ground because he's getting ready to do something really big. And he wants them to respond to it. Three and a half years pass. God tells Elijah, go back to the king. Tell Ahab, I'm going to send rain. And I want him to gather all Israel to Mount Carmel. 
And so that's exactly what Ahab did. He called all of Israel. Thousands showed up at Mount Carmel. I mentioned, if you go with us to Israel, we'll take you, I think on day two, to Mount Carmel. We'll park the bus. We'll get out. We'll go up on the mountain where all this took place. We'll stand on the mountain. We'll look, um, and we'll see the Valley of Megiddo, otherwise known as Armageddon. And so there on Mount Carmel, Israel shows up. They see Elijah, the prophet of the true God, on one side. They see 450 prophets of Baal on the other side. And the instructions of the contest, the showdown at Carmel, were very clear. See, God wanted there to be a showdown to prove to his people, Israel, who the true God was. They thought Baal was the God of rain. God's going to show them who's really in charge, who's really sovereign. And so the instructions of the contest are clear. Elijah says, I have a bull. And you 450 prophets, you have a bull. I want you to sacrifice your bull, cut it up. I want you to make an altar of wood, and I want you to lay the pieces of the sacrifice on that altar of wood, but do not start a fire underneath it. I'm going to do the same thing with my bull. I'm going to sacrifice my bull, lay its pieces on a wooden altar. I'm not going to start any fire underneath it. And then Elijah gave these instructions. Check it out on the screen. This is now 1 Kings 18, 24. He says to the prophets of Baal, you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by what? He is God. The God who answers by fire, the God who burns up this burnt offering, this bull, this sacrifice, he is God. You go first. And so many of, this, many of you guys know the story. The 450 prophets of Baal, they began to pray from morning all the way to noon. Oh, Baal, hear us. Oh, Baal, hear us. Oh, Baal, hear us. No response. And so they decide, well, let's try to get his attention. So they began to run around and jump. Now, I think that's very interesting because here's, here's what we do. We think in the church, if we're going to have revival, then we got to work it up. Right? We got to work it up emotionally. We got to get all into a frenzy. Ladies and gentlemen, we can't work it up. God's got to bring revival down by his spirit. <laughs> revival is not some emotional work it up. Revival is a matter of repentance. Let's turn from our sins. Let's begin to trust and follow Yahweh. And then watch what God does in and through his local church. But nonetheless, the prophets of Baal are running around. They begin to leap over the pieces of bull. They begin to leap back and forth over the sacrifice. Still no response. Elijah decides now's the time to mock these guys. And so he stands over and he goes, hey, maybe Baal's sleeping. Maybe he went on a journey, right? And he actually begins to mock these 450 prophets of Baal. Maybe he's too busy to answer you. And so in a frenzy, what do they do? As was their practice, they begin to cut themselves. And now as they're running and jumping, blood is gushing out. They're trying to get their God's attention. Still no answer. Now it was Elijah's turn. All by himself. By the way, sometimes God will ask you to stand alone for him. He takes 12 stones, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. He places them down. He puts the wood down. He sacrifices his bull, cuts it up, lays the pieces of bull on the sacrifice, on the wood, around the stones. Then he digs a trench all the way around this sacrifice, right? This must have taken at least an hour to do all of this work. All Israel's there, the Valley of Megiddo, um, Mount Carmel on the west, they're watching all of this, and he tells the people, I want you to douse this sacrifice with water, not once, not twice, three times. They, they continue to bring the buckets, dousing it, dousing it. Now everything is soaked, and the, the trench is filled to overflowing with water. And then Elijah, not trying to work anything up, just says one simple prayer. He says in 1 Kings 18, 37, hear me, O Lord, that this people may know that you are God 
and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. And when he said amen, bam, the fire of God right then came down on the sacrifice. It, it was so intense, this fire, that it burned the bull. It burned the wood. It burned the stones. It burned the dust. And it licked up all the water in the trench. And all of a sudden, all the people started to shout, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. And Elijah said, grab the prophets of Baal. Don't let any of them escape. And they took him down to the brook. And Elijah executed all 450 prophets of Baal. You think, that's so horrible. Listen, under a theocracy where God is the God of that nation, Israel, in that time of history, that was completely legitimate what Elijah did in the name of God. Why? Because God is the true God. Ladies and gentlemen, you know what so saddens me as a pastor? Is when I see everyday Christians sitting in churches and, and their friends, family, neighbors, co-workers challenge them. Well, how do you know your God's a true God? What about all these other gods? How do you know Jesus is really the true God? What about all these other religions and their gods? And what saddens me is that we don't even know what to say to these people. Ladies and gentlemen, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is the one and only true God, and his son, Yeshua, is the son of the living God, the eternal son of the living God. That is the true God. One God eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I was listening to Pastor's Perspective the other day. Um, it's a radio program put on by Calvary Chapel out in California, and Don Stewart and Pastor Brian Broderson, who took over for Chuck Smith, they were answering the questions. By the way, their books are available in the cafe if you're interested. And so somebody called in and said, how do you know Jesus is the truth and not Muhammad? And, and I heard that question and I thought, how many people in our church could answer that question? How do you know Jesus is really true and not Muhammad? What would you say to that? Well, I was so happy for these men who represent Calvary Chapel because they said, you know, it's so simple. Let's start with Jesus. Jesus had hundreds of prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, about who the Messiah would be, how he would live, how he would suffer, how he would die, how he would rise again, how he would ascend to the right hand of the Father, all written about hundreds of years before he came, all fulfilled in one man and one man only, Jesus Christ fulfilled prophecy. Not only that, all the miracles that Jesus did uh, recorded in, in the Gospels, hundreds and hundreds of miracles. And not only that, the greatest miracle of all, he died and then he got up three days later and walked out of the grave. That miracle. And by the way, he was seen by over 500 people alive after he had been dead. And if you lived in the first century, you could go knock on their doors because this is not a fairy tale, this is a historical fact. Mohammed, not one prophecy ever about his life. Mohammed, never one miracle ever. And Mohammed, when he died, he stayed in the grave. So you judge, who's the true God? Jesus or Mohammed? Jesus is. And that's not fairy tale, that's not wishful thinking, that's not hope so, that's a fact. And if you're on the fence about where do you believe or where do you fall, you got to get on the, the team of Jesus as soon as you can and become a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through him. He's the only way. And so, not only did the fire come down and lick up, burn up that sacrifice, another miracle occurred. All of a sudden, at God's command through Elijah, a storm came. Three and a half years, total drought. And now all of a sudden, here comes the rain. And the rain came and drenched the entire land of Israel. What did that prove? That proved who really was in control of the rain, not Baal, Yahweh. And so then, after that, you would think by those two great miracles... The, what happened at Mount Carmel and then what happened in the drought with the storm coming, you think that would, cause, that would have caused Queen Jezebel to have repented and said, yeah, you're right, Elijah. I've been wrong all these years. 
It didn't make her repent. It made her more angry at Elijah. And she, she sent a message to the prophet of God. She said, by this time tomorrow, you're a dead man. And what did Elijah do? Does anybody remember? He ran for his life. Do you see in our humanness, there's some days we feel so bold, we can take on the world, and others days we feel so discouraged and so depressed. Why? We're human. Hey, it's not about us. It's about God. And Elijah, here's what Elijah did. He ran for his life, all the way down to Beersheba, caught his breath, ran another 40 days or so, all the way down to Mount Horeb, otherwise known as Mount Sinai, where Moses received the Ten Commandments. And he was way down there in the desert. And he's there, he's starving to death, he's crying, he's praying. God appears to him and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And this is how it ties in now to Romans chapter 11. Let's see how Elijah responds to God. Paul quoted it in chapter 11, verse 3 again. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah responds to God in verse 3. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Okay, it's called the Elijah complex. I'm the only one left, right? Was that true? No, look how God responds to him in verse four. What was the divine response? God says to Elijah, Elijah, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men. By the way, that's not a lot when you look at a whole nation of people, but anyway, it's a remnant. I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. What's the point here? Again, We'll put it on the screen. There has always been a faithful remnant even in the darkest times of history. God has his remnant. I believe, I don't know how you believe, but I believe that right now in our nation, the United States of America, we're living in a very dark time. A very dark time. And by the way, the church is of no help. I don't know if you've noticed, but most mainline denominations are thoroughly apostate today. If you ever move to another city and decide to go to church, be very careful where you go to church. Mark my words, most, not some, most of the mainline denominations are thoroughly apostate. What's apostasy? They've abandoned the faith. That means they don't no longer believe that this is God's word. That means they no longer believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life that he died vicariously on a cross. They no longer believe in the substitutionary atonement. I heard one evangelical pastor say, there's no way God poured out his wrath on his son. That would be child abuse. That's an evangelical pastor. If that's not an apostate statement, I don't know what is. He's, they don't no longer believe in the substitutionary atonement. There are bishops in these mainline denominations that completely deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think, what do they do on Easter? I mean, come on, right? And not only that, but they, they marry gay couples and they, they ordain gay clergy in many of these mainline denominations. What's happened? The church has become apostate. We live in a dark time. What is God calling us to do? To conform ourselves to the culture? To embrace it? To kiss Baal on the mouth? No, he's calling men and women to stand up and to speak out against the darkness. Even if you have to stand alone. Here's what it takes. God doesn't need a lot of people to do his work. He's always had his remnant. What's a remnant? The definition of a remnant is a small quantity a small quantity, 7,000 men is not that much compared to a whole nation. And ladies and gentlemen, our, 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 our churches are on a divided, a divided highway. We can either go with the culture and be politically correct and just kind of like hold hands and walk off into the sunset together singing kumbaya and embracing all the false doctrine. Or we can stand up and say, this is God's word. Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. 
He really was born of a virgin. He really did live a sinless life. He really did die on the cross. God really did pour out his wrath on Jesus so he wouldn't have to pour out his wrath on me. He really did get up three days later bodily and walk out of a grave. He really did ascend bodily into heaven and seat at the right hand of the Father. And he really is, not allegorically or symbolically, he really is coming back to rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years. That takes courage to believe that. And so, we live in dark times. Most people in our culture, they don't care about the Lord, they don't care about his word. And that's seen in our headlines, that's seen by the sinful practices that people engage in every day. But God has his remnant. The question is, are you part of the remnant? You see, because you as an individual have a choice. You can either conform yourself to the world or you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, we're gonna get to Romans 12 one of these days. <laughs> and I can't wait to get to Romans 12 because when we get to Romans 12 from the rest of the book, it's gonna be practical Christian living all the way through, 12 through 16. And Paul wrote to the church at Rome and he'll say to Calvary, poor St. Lucie today, if he was alive, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, everybody please say holy, and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And be not transformed, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's God's call in our lives. And so... We'll get to Romans 12 later. Let's keep, continue on now, verse five in chapter 11. Even so then, at this present time, Paul would say, first century AD, there is a what? A remnant. According to the election of, what's the word? Grace. And I, I laughed when I, when I read this this past week because, I mean, how many times has Paul made this point and yet he won't? Let it go. Look at verse six. And if by grace, then it is no longer of what? <laughs> there he goes again. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, salvation, if it's salvation is by works, hey, it's no longer of grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Here's your next point if you're taking notes. Because salvation is by God's grace, it cannot be by our works. Again, how many times have we talked about this, going verse by verse through the Bible? And so I'll, I'll talk kind of briefly because I know you guys have heard this over and over, but the problem in Paul's day in the first century is that most of the, not all, but most of the Jews, right, were trying to work their way into God's good graces. They're trying to work their way into the kingdom. They thought in their self-righteousness, if I can just keep the law, God will save me. That means if I can just make sure that I eat kosher food, I keep the Sabbath day, I keep all the feast days, and not only that, I never work on, um, on the Sabbath. If I can do those things, right, make sure that my sons are circumcised, if I can do those things, then maybe God will save me. And Paul's like, no, you guys got it all wrong. You don't keep the law to be saved. You keep the law because you are saved by grace. It's a gift. In other words, if some, of, if some of you who are visiting for the first time today, you fill out your Get Connected card and you bring it out to the Welcome Center, and you say, hey, I'm visiting for the first time, and somebody there says, oh, we're so glad you came today. Here's your free book and your free coffee mug. And as they hand it to you, they then say, oh, and don't forget, uh, we expect you to be here tomorrow at 9 a.m. to help clean the church and mow the lawn. <laughs> Would those gifts be free, yes or No. No. Why? Because there's works attached to it. By the way, if anybody, anybody ever says that to you, let me know who that is, okay, so I can deal with it. Okay, it's the same thing with our salvation. Our salvation does not come to us by our works. Our salvation comes to us by God's grace. And when do we receive God's grace? One and only way. When we, by faith, embrace Jesus Christ, the only hope of our salvation. And when we embrace him, the Holy Spirit of God comes inside of us. And listen, then he changes us. 
It's a process, but he changes us. And then we don't keep the moral law to be saved. No, we keep God's moral law because we're saved, because we love the Lord. And he changes us, ladies and gentlemen. That means that if you're living with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and you're having sex with that person outside of the covenant of marriage, you got to ask yourself the question, am I really born again? Does the Spirit of God really live inside of me? Because if God's Holy Spirit lived inside of me, I would not be partaking unrepentantly, practicing a sinful lifestyle, right? If God's really living inside of me, I'm not going to rent R-rated movies and listen to the F-bomb dropped a hundred times and watch all kind of nudity into my living room. If God's spirit, right, really lives inside of me, if I'm doing drugs, he'll deliver me from that. If I'm getting drunk on the weekends, he'll deliver me from that. You see, here's the problem in the church. We want to hear all about God's grace and all about God's love. But then when some preacher starts to talk about how God comes in and the response to the grace is a holy life, we get maybe 15, 20 people that clap. But that's the whole gospel, ladies and gentlemen. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It's a remnant. You see, we've never made numerical goals here at Calvary. We talk about 100 life groups because we believe God spoke to our hearts. Someday you'll have 100 life groups. We, we talk about that, but we don't make numerical goals like, okay, next year we're going to have 2,000. The year after that, we want to have 3,000. We don't do any of that because we understand by God's grace and through a guy named Chuck Smith that the success of a church is not measured by how many people you can pack in a room. The true success of a church is how many of those people are lifelong followers of Jesus Christ. That's the success of a church. And so look at verse 7 now. What then, Paul says, Israel has not obtained what it seeks. Israel as a nation. He's not talking about individual Jews. Thousands and thousands of individual Jews have received Yeshua and been saved, like Paul, the one who's writing this. He's talking about the nation. Israel has not obtained what it seeks, salvation, because they're trying to get it through the law. But the elect have obtained it, so sad, and the rest were what? So right now we see that the nation of Israel is temporarily blinded. Just as it is written, Paul being a Bible teacher backs up what he says. First quoting Isaiah, God has given them a spirit of stupor. Now quoting Moses in Deuteronomy. Eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. Now he quotes David in Psalm 69. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. What was the result of Israel's stubbornness? Well, Isaiah, Moses, David, they all predicted judgment in the Old Testament. Did you guys know that Jesus predicted the same thing in the New Testament? Check it out, Matthew chapter 23. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is Jesus talking. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. You see, just like a mother hen Loves, wants to care for, wants to protect her little chicks. Jesus, when he came 2,000 years ago, loved, cared for, and wanted to protect Israel. But how can a mother hen protect her little chicks when those chicks are always running away? And it, Israel did the same thing to Jesus. And so what was the result? It's the very next verse. Look at verse 38. Jesus said about the nation of Israel, see, your house is left to you desolate. That was said, there's some debate, but right around AD 32, Jesus said those words about the nation of Israel. Did you know that within 40 years, that statement was fulfilled, another fulfilled prophecy? Jesus said that around AD 32, 
In AD 66, the Jews rebelled against the Roman Empire. They fought and they took Jerusalem. Caesar was not going to stand by without a fight. And so what did he do? He sent a general named Titus. And Titus went to Jerusalem with a Roman army to, to put down the rebellion. This started right around A.D. 66. It lasted from A.D. 66 to A.D. 73. It's known as the Great Rebellion. And so the Romans surrounded the city of Jerusalem. For 143 days, they cut off supply lines and any contact the Jews had with their, her, her neighbors. Of course, the result of that is famine. When the food runs out, there's no more food. You can't send somebody out to get food. The famine became so bad. You can read about all about this in secular history today if you want to. The famine became so bad within the city gates of Jerusalem as the Roman army surrounded it that the Jews within the gate began to eat their own feces and they began to eat their own children. Many Jews tried to escape under the cover of darkness at night. They jumped the wall, they'd run. The Romans would grab them and they, they would crucify these Jews. All these crosses outside of the gates of Jerusalem. The Romans pound, pound on the gates. Finally, they broke in. They breached the wall. And during the attack, during the invasion, a Roman soldier takes a torch that's lit with fire and throws it into one of the doors of the temple. And the entire temple of God burns to the ground. That happened in A.D. 70. By the time the Great Revolt was over in A.D. 73, over one million Jews had perished. You fast forward in history to A.D. 132, the Jews decide once again to rebel against Rome. They're defeated once again, and this time Rome kicks them out of Jerusalem. No Jew ever allowed to live in Jerusalem. They kicked them out. They sold many Jews into slavery down in Egypt. And not only that, but Caesar renames Israel Palestine. Why, in A.D. 132 to 135, did he rename Israel Palestine? It comes from Israel's ancient foes, the Philistines. That's what the Romans would do. They would conquer a nation, and they would change the name of that nation um, to whatever the name of their foes were, their enemies were, Palestine. And so eight, over 1,800 years, the Jews, as you know, I'm sure, uh, were dispersed from their land. But in May of 1948, they came back to their land. Never happened before in history, never happened again. Why did they come back? Here's why. Because God is not done with Israel. Why did they come back to their land? Because God wanted to set the stage for the end times when he's going to wrap everything up. Why did they come back to their land? Because God has to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. It's an everlasting covenant. It's an unconditional covenant. God will fulfill all his promises to the Jews. And even if the whole nation rebels against, them, against him, he'll still do it through a remnant of Jews. Is God finished with Israel? Let's see what Jeremiah has to say. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the, the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night. This is what God says. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight will Israel ever cease being a nation before me. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a question for you. Has the sun, sun stopped shining? Has the moon and stars stopped reflecting the light of the sun? That means God is not done with Israel. How sad that so many churches today have a doctrine called replacement theology, and they say that the church has replaced Israel and God is done with Israel. And then what do they do when they come to certain sections of the Bible, like Romans 9, 9 through 11, and especially the book of Revelation, they have to use all this spiritual language and they interpret it symbolically and allegorically. Well, hey, guess what? We can interpret this book literally because God is not done with Israel. Israel is Israel, the church is the church. 
We'll read verses 11 through 15 and make one more comment and then we're done. Look at verse 11. I say then, have they, the nation of Israel, stumbled that they should fall? In other words, is, is their fall permanent? What's the next two words? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to who? The Gentiles. Okay? And so you say, what's my primary ministry to the Jews? Make them jealous. Right? Love their God, Yahweh, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love their scriptures. Let them see God in you. And let them be jealous. Look at verse 12. Now, if their fall is riches for the world. By the way, how can their fall be riches for the world? Because the nation rejected their Messiah, so the gospel has gone to all the whole world, including Gentiles like you and me. Is this making sense to you guys? Okay, so if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Verse 13, for I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may, here it is again, provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh, that's the Jews, and save some of them. And we see this throughout the book of Acts. Paul goes to a city. The first place he goes to is a synagogue because it's always to the Jew first. He reasons to them from the scriptures, Isaiah 53, Daniel 9, Psalm 22. Some of them, of the Jews, get saved. Most of them reject Jesus. And then what happens is that Paul begins to turn to the Gentiles. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, thousands of Gentiles come to Christ. They love Yahweh. They love the scriptures. And the Jews, throughout the book of Acts, were jealous of the Gentiles. Look at verse 15. For if they're being cast away is reconciling of the world. Okay, so they rejected the Messiah. So the gospel went to the world. Billions with a B of Gentiles have been reconciled to God. Okay, if that happened, end of verse 15, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? What does that mean? That means that one day Israel will be accepted Ladies and gentlemen, when is that going to happen? When Jesus comes back. When Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation after a series of battles called Armageddon, he will come back. Israel will look up. They'll see Jesus with the scars in his resurrected body, and they will say, really? <laughs> he was our Messiah all along? And they'll put their trust in Yeshua and then we'll see it next week, all Israel will be saved. And when that happens, their acceptance, that's gonna usher in, listen, there's politicians right now who say this, I wanna make America great again. Do you, you know when the world's gonna become great again? When Jesus Christ comes back. That's when the world's gonna become great again. All right, and so, this is very exciting, and so here's your last point. It's a very long quote by Chuck Swindoll. Here's what's gonna happen when Jesus comes back. Jesus Christ will be crowned as the supreme leader of the world in the city of Jerusalem, where he will guide the affairs of every country. Knowledge of the Lord will flood the earth. The righteousness of God will overshadow all other influences. The curses will be lifted. Crime, poverty, pollution, disease, and war will become a distant memory. Ecological and sociological problems, a thing of the past. Thank God Satan and his demons will be bound and gagged. This is Israel's future. This is the fulfillment of their covenant promises. Not a thin strip of land deeded to them by a bunch of diplomats. This is what they have to look forward to as a people. Victory, abundance, and blessing beyond comprehension. Why? Because they will put their faith, hope, and trust in Yeshua. And he will raise them back up 
to a place of prominence in the world. And he, from Jerusalem, will reign literally, not allegorically, literally, he will reign from Jerusalem for 1,000 years. It's been in the book for 2,000 years. Check it out. Read it. Get excited. We don't know the day or the hour, but Jesus is coming back. We can't wait. We can't wait. Ladies and gentlemen, he's the only answer to all of our problems. If you guys could stand to your feet. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com. Click on Home, then Knowing Christ.